Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Mr. President? What is it? I'm watching the Jeffersons. They're probably going to want to tear down Louise's statue next. Can we talk about Guam? Oh, no, thanks. I already had lunch. Melania's been buying me pre-digested steak. No, Guam is a place, and it's very much in the path of any future North Korean aggression. Well, that's their problem. I'm strictly America first. Do I ask the king of Guam to help me tweet about Dick Blumenthal? Guam is America. It's an unincorporated territory of the U.S. Like Hawaii, where all those Hussein boys grew up on the beach. You know, that's why they call them sunny Muslims. There are so many things wrong with that statement, I don't even know where to begin. Look, whatever your name is. Rex Tillerson, sir. Fine. You were great in Dr. Doolittle, but I don't really have time to talk about guacamole or whatever it's called. Maybe you could just feed it to the fake public radio, all fake things considered fake news people. In fact, who's that guy that I really hate? Colin McEnroe. Hopefully the president of the United States has a slightly better grasp of what Guam is, but I'm not sure how much better. Uh, And I think the other thing that I think I've learned over the last three or four days is that nobody's grasp of Guam or very few people here in America understand what Guam is uh, both as a matter of policy and both, and also as a matter of reality. I sure did. I mean, I learned so much getting ready uh, for this show. Uh, we do want to talk to you about Guam. Imagine a place well, where you were about as close as any American citizen could be uh, to a very dangerous foe of the United States, uh, where policies enacted by the United States would probably affect you first and everybody else later, but you had less ability than almost anybody else in the United States to affect those policies, uh, to do anything about them. Uh, That's pretty much the situation in which Guam finds itself as an unincorporated territory. Uh, It does not get to vote for president, uh, and it uh, doesn't vote for a voting member of Congress. They they do send delegates to national political conventions, uh, and they have um, a representative who doesn't vote in Congress. Uh, and on the other hand, they endure some hardships going all the way back to World War II, as you'll find out today, that other countries do not, uh, or excuse me, other parts of the country do not. So um, with that in mind, we're this. <laughs> if I sound discombobulated, this show is a little bit tricky to put together because we started out with this idea. Yes, we should do kind of a salute to Guam and, and an understanding of Guam. And it didn't occur to us, once again, there are these little hidden details. It didn't occur to us that Guam is 14 hours ahead of us uh, time-wise, which meant that if we wanted to talk to somebody even at 9 o'clock at night, we'd have to do that at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, so we've done quite a bit of that. You're going to hear some taped segments, but I also have people here live on the air with me uh, in studio is Dr. Helen Everard, a uh, physician, author, radio host of Your Mind Matters on WESU in Middletown, one of our uh, favorite stations that's not our station. Uh, we re- she recently visited Guam. Uh, for an extended stay uh, with her daughter, who is a teacher on the island. We thought it would be really interesting. uh, We're talking mainly to people who live on Guam right now or who have lived on Guam. We've talked to a lot of people who spoke to us from Guam. But we thought it would be also interesting to have Helen on, partly just because uh, it's interesting to have 
the perspective of a fresh set of eyes, somebody who hasn't been living with a whole bunch of realities that maybe people take a little bit for granted. Also joining us from The Washington Post, Gene Park, reporter for The Washington Post, born and raised on Guam. Uh, he wrote an essay for The Washington Post called Guam, a Colonized Island Nation, where 160,000 American lives are not only at risk, but often forgotten. Uh, it's that forgotten part that we really want to address today. So, um, Gene, maybe you can get us started here. First of all, um, half a day. Um, hey. <laughs> and um, second of all, it's uh, maybe you can just sort of set the stage a little bit. I've tried to describe the, the, the polity, the political structure uh, or status uh, of Guam, but maybe you can sketch it out a little bit more. What is Guam? How did it come to be what it is? Sure. Uh, well, Guam was uh, colonized by uh, the, the Spanish. It was, uh, quote-unquote, discovered by Magellan. Uh, I'm, I'm already forgetting the year, um, uh, but but several hundred years ago. Uh, and eventually, uh, during the Spanish-American War, it fell into the, 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 the territory of the United States. Uh, in 1941, uh, Japan invaded, and Guam was given up after about two days of battle. And uh, the, the citizens of Guam, thousands of people, uh, were the, the launched into forced labor under the Japanese Empire, uh, and then uh, they were liberated by Marines again in 1944. And then since then, it's been the U.S. territory of Guam. Uh, they operate uh, much like they do in uh, your city and county. Um, they have a, a legislature that votes on laws. They have a governor that, that passes those laws. Um, and, they, and as you already mentioned, they have a non-voting uh, House delegate. Um, she's not allowed to vote unless uh, it's basically like ceremonious, like the vote's already going to pass. And they'll tell her, you know, you know what, go ahead, you can throw in your vote there. So. Um, I want to get to Helen in a second, but uh, one of the people that we also talked to, I talked to her uh, this morning, somebody that Jean knows, actually, Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, managing editor of the University of Guam Press. Uh, she had written an open letter to uh, from Guam to America for the Boston Review. One of the things we talked about early this morning or late at night for her uh, was, in fact, that history uh, with Japan, the, the fact that uh, people don't talk about Guam when they talk about Pearl Harbor, but Guam's story was, uh, if anything, well, I mean, well, I'll let Victoria tell her. Here she is. Guam was invaded, that's correct, on the same day as Pearl Harbor. When you consider that Guam is actually a day ahead of Hawaii, we were bombed by the Japanese on uh, December 8th, 1941. Um, and then two days later, um, Governor McMillan, who was then a naval governor of the island, surrendered. And so the island was under Japanese rule for two and a half years. Our local population, which was almost entirely Chamorro people or the native people of Guam, was at about 20,000, and so over a 1,000 people died, and, and many others suffered from witnessing the beheadings of their loved ones, rape, and other um, horrific you know, wartime atrocities. I mean, not to say that their entire experience was full of all of that, but there was a lot of suffering and pain, and when you think of how small the community was and how important family is for us to see your family members suffer, to see them hungry, to see them die in front of you or be raped in front of you, that trauma has really lasted all these generations, and it's very real for our people. The people of Guam were not American citizens. Um, we had been granted uh, U.S. citizenship by the signing of the Organic Act, in 1950 by Congress, and we sort of have a different type of citizenship, one in which 
we aren't able to vote for president, one in which uh, we don't have a voting representative in Congress. And a lot of our um, historians will, will argue, in fact, that you know the U.S. had been condemning so much property to use for their bases, and we weren't citizens, which was actually in violation of the Treaty of Paris, which is how they acquired Guam at the end of this, the Spanish, I mean, Spanish-American wars. Because of that, uh, the Organic Act, make, by making us sort of second-class citizens, legalized the land taking that had occurred sort of leading up to the attack by the Japanese, they had evacuated American dependents. And at the time, there were Chamorro women who had already been married to men in the Navy, both men from the U.S. who had come to Guam and and married women there, um, and they weren't evacuated. And then also Chamorro men were serving in the Navy at the time, and they were only allowed to serve in the galleys, but still they had been on ships and served in World War One, and they had been, you know, part of the military, but their dependents were not evacuated. And so, so sort of anticipating attack, they uh, evacuated the dependents. On December 6th, Governor McMillan was shredding documents, you know, knowing that the attack was going to come. And, you know, when I've spent a lot of time as a journalist and as a writer, even just my, my grandparents and um, my, my grandparents' siblings, uh, when they talk about the war, they had always been reassured that America was the greatest country in the world, that Japan would never attack us, and that if they attacked us, America would easily defeat them. You know, of course, they had anxiety about it. Of course, they knew uh, that the world, the war was sort of coming their way. And at the time, Japan had taken the rest of the region. So at the end of the Spanish-American War, Guam went to the U.S., but then the rest of the Marianas and Micronesia had gone to Germany and then to Japan. And so Guam was the only sort of non-Japanese territory at that time. So it was very easy to attack Guam, but the people of Guam hadn't really been prepared for that. Even all of the U.S.'s defenses had been en route to Hawaii, so it was actually a local insular guard that defended the island and that fought the Japanese those first couple days with weapons that literally said for display only because they were old weapons. They hadn't been left with uh, the weapons to defend themselves, and, and most of them died. So when we look at what's happening today, it's important for us to look at history and say, well, you know, this has happened to us before. We've been told that we're fully protected, that we have nothing to worry about. America's the greatest and most powerful nation in the world. But then we were attacked, and you know, we're dealing right now with very unpredictable leaders. And that, of course, is why we're talking about Guam today. Uh, there has been saber rattling from North Korea, uh, although it seems to have backed off uh, quite a bit, at least for now. But this is something that um, that Guamanians live with. Um, and Jean, I just want to say that <laughs> until I started preparing for this show, I think I subscribed to the old myth of America, which is that we've never had an occupying army on our soil. We don't know what that's like. Well, this is part of America. There was an occupying army there, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Helen, as uh, as somebody who just recently was there for the first time, I know one of the things that you said b- before the show was you really get a sense uh, of how isolated Guam is. I mean, absolutely. yeah, go ahead. Talk, yeah. Just describe that for us. Well, you know, just getting over there you, takes you a couple of, of plane trips and you're going across the ocean. It's a small island and you just realize, oh, I'm on a place that's as big as Manhattan and there's no place to go. Uh, so it's really a shock. Mm. Um, but what I found was that it's just 
it, it gives you so much fewer choices. All the happiness people talk about, lack of choice and happiness, it's actually true. Mm. In the beginning, you think, oh, I can't find this or I can't get that or this isn't in the store. But um, it actually makes for a sense of community and just the limitation of choices makes for a certain sense of calm. Um, you know, on a, on a, on a geo- geographic basis, you know, it's not Hawaii. I mean, they've had invasion of snakes and beetles and things like that that have affected the beauty of the island. And yet, you know, my daughter, I was able to visit her. She teaches in a Tomorrow's Middle School, the Agatha Johnston Middle School. I want to give a shout out to them because they allowed me to visit. And it's a wonderful place, uh, but it's got a lot of challenges and limitations. Um, Jean, I also wonder what it's like to grow up there and be taught there. I, I feel as though where we are taught, where we are taught U.S. history often affects very much how we understand U.S. history. I'm sure that if I'd grown up and gone to school in Atlanta, my vision of U.S. history would be slightly different than it is having grown up in Connecticut. So what's the version that you get as a Guamanian? Sure. Well, you know, given everything that's going on in the country right now, uh, it, it is interesting to hear about other people's experiences about what they learned in school. Uh, when I grew up in school, I went to Catholic school for all 12 years. Over 85% of the island is Catholic, so that's very common. Um, and we were taught very much about the atrocities that the that the, that the U.S. Uh, uh, um, uh, committed uh, as they were taking over America. We learned about Native populations. We did learn a lot about Guam history. Uh, much of what Victoria said uh, rings familiar. Uh, and she's been studying all, all her life, and uh, the, these are things that we're taught that that that, that America that, that America was an invasive force uh, that that many much many lands were taken. Um, World War II was a bad thing. The Civil War uh, was a war uh, with traitors. Uh, these are all things that I learned uh, growing up in school. So as as uh, Helen said, that there are a lot of limitations, and the public school system is very very much uh, strapped in terms of resources. Um, but I believe that that we did grow up with some pretty good information, too. Um, I should probably um, try, and Gene, maybe you can help me out here as I go, to define some of the terms that we're uh, throwing around here. Tomorrow is a term that describes the indigenous population uh, of Guam. It's also a term that uh, has been used to describe the indigenous population in the past of other um, Marianas Islands. And I think that's sort of where Guamanian comes from, right? The notion of how, how do you make a distinction between tomorrow and Guam and elsewhere? Sure. Yeah, Guamanian is basically like like someone like me, someone who was born and raised but is not. Uh, I'm Korean, so uh, so I'm not uh, native tomorrow. Uh, I'm I am related to tomorrow's by marriage, um, but. Uh, yes, Guamania is is the preferred term for someone uh, living uh, living on Guam that is not native. It's a lot like Hawaii, and I lived in Hawaii for eight years. You don't call everybody in Hawaii a, a Hawaiian. Uh, only people who are native Hawaiians are Hawaiians, and everyone else is just someone from Hawaii or a Hawaii resident. Could you also, I mean, obviously, it's, there's 163,000 people. Uh, they aren't all easily describable in one way. But, but I know that you feel as though uh, a typical Guamanian maybe might not be all that different from a typical Midwesterner. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, like I said, Guam is just like any, it's probably just a lot like your city and county. Um, and from people that I've known who from Texas or from the South who live there, they see a lot of parallels. Uh, I see them too. Uh, people on Guam love barbecue. Uh, they're church-loving people. Uh, they love their guns, and uh, they, they can be pretty socially conservative too. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting political mix there. Helen, I know during your extended stay on Guam, you felt as though you were seeing at least three Guams. Talk about those three realities. To me, I divided the island into three chunks, which is the Air Force Base in the north 
and the naval base where my daughter lives on the southeast, uh, southwest, and then um, the area uh, where the Japanese and other Asians come for tourism is very built up. It's a beautiful beach, um, and that was kind of it. And then in between um, are just, uh, as Jean said, you know, the people who live there and who work there. And so, some of those people have not gotten rich from the tourist boom or anything. Oh, like absolutely that, right? not. Um, you know, I mean, the one thing that as as I was going around the island and went to shops and restaurants and things like that, oh, I was struck by the fact that a lot of the people who were there were either very old or or sort of high school college age. Um, and I would say, well, where are your children or your daughters? And a lot of people, if they really want a future or, um, you know, want to get somewhere, they, they do leave the island, as Jean did. You know, they, they go to Hawaii, a lot go to Hawaii, Alaska, uh, the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, California. And uh, this is, um, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, I want to talk a little bit about anxiety. These are anxious times for uh, people who live on Guam, people who know people who live on Guam. They should be anxious times, I, I think, for all of us uh, anyway. Um, we did talk to Victoria early this morning uh, about that. Here's what she said. Guam has a huge military population, not just those that come to the island with the military, but a lot of Chamorros have um, joined the military. And so many people have family members in the military and, in, and because of that, there's this way in which when you sort of question the U.S. or doubt the U.S., it's like you're doubting your family member, you're being disrespectful to them. So a lot of people won't really speak out. But those of us who are parents of young children, like a friend of mine who works at the restaurant near the university, her daughter is going to be a freshman in high school. And her daughter didn't want to leave the house without her mom. She didn't want her mom to go to work. She was completely... Uh, terrified and didn't want to be away from her parents in case something happened. My son's daycare, they gave us a letter a couple days ago saying, in light of recent events, we want to be prepared, so will you bring non-perishable food items, two gallons of water, and five sets of clothes in case an attack happens and we're stuck here. And so when I was talking with the teacher about that, she was saying, you know, I know that they keep telling us we're fine and we're safe, but... I just keep praying. I'm, I'm really scared. And I think for mothers, that's a particularly real experience. The Guam Department of Homeland Security had finally released fact sheets on Friday. So I read it aloud to my husband and my five-year-old and two-year-old. And of course, my two-year-old, he, he gets some of it, but not in the same way as my five-year-old. And, you know, I think someone had been throwing out the date, you know, August 15th as a potential attack. And so on the 14th, he kept asking me, like, Mommy, are we going to get bombed tomorrow? And it would be at different points in the day. Like, so what if we, you know, what if we're in the car when we get bombed? You know, when you, you told us that we have to be inside, we have to go in the hallway. What if we're in the car? You know, will the windows break? Like, he's running all these scenarios in his mind. They go to bed at 8 every night, and so at 8 I was tucking him in, and we had a, we had a peace march on the 14th. So we had a really eventful day. And, you know, throughout the day, he kept asking me these questions, and then he kept saying that his stomach was hurting. But, you know, I kept asking him, you know, are you okay? You know, maybe it's something you ate. But then I realized that every time we were having these conversations, of course, that's when his stomach was hurting. And then when we were at the Peace March, someone had blown the kulu or the shell, and he was like, Mommy, my stomach's hurting again. I think it's the kulu. And so I realized that it was anxiety. I, I realize that now, they, you know, North Korea is pulling back and the threat is slowly fading away. 
but the experience was very real for my poor child, you know, and for me to have to comfort him in this situation, it's it's not natural. And, and our governor keeps saying, you know, we're fine, we know how to prepare for storms, but this isn't a natural disaster. This is a man-made conflict and potential catastrophe, and we shouldn't have to be going through this. And the reason we're going through this is because America is here, is because we're a U.S. colony. And um, Helen, your daughter is teaching in a Chamorro school, um, and she's running some of the drills that Victoria talks about, right? I spoke with her this morning, yep. And, and how's that going? Well, you know, the kids start tomorrow, <laughs> so <laughs> they haven't come back yet. But she's been in teacher orientation, and she's feeling exactly what Victoria said, you know, the sort of a difference. And she's gathered her documents, and she has the faith that military spouses have in, you know, the sense that, oh, we're going to be protected, everything will be all right. Um, it was ironic because she told me that on the first day back for teacher orientation, in the middle of it, the alarm went off in her school. Uh, the announcement came over, we are under threat, and she freaked out. It turns out somebody in the office pressed the wrong button. So it was really funny uh, in retrospect. But um, she she feels it, and um, the kids are coming back tomorrow, and they're just doing the best uh, they can. Jean, one thing that you mentioned was the, the religious faith um, in, in Guam. Uh, if Guam were a country, it would be a Catholic country. It would mm-hmm. probably be the next most Catholic country after the Vatican City, <laughs> given the numbers. Yeah. And and yeah. so I'm assuming that's one of the things I, I think a lot of people would, would find it difficult living with the kind of uncertainty that we're talking about here. I assume this is one of the ways that people do live with the uncertainty. Absolutely. Uh, the, the people that are very strong in the faith, actually, that's the model of my high school, strong in the faith. Um, uh, you know, the, this is a very existential threat where they feel incredibly powerless. So what would what else could they do except uh, uh, pray uh, and, and hope for the best um, and, and just continue to live, live their lives? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we were always uh, taught on how to uh, how to prepare for war. Um, the, the governor of Guam is right, and the, the, people, the people of Guam are the most prepared for any kind of natural disaster, um, and we've been, we've lived without electricity, we've lived without water, um, and uh, a lot of that has to go with uh, how strong people's faiths are. They, they lean on their faith in terms of uh, dealing with something like this. When I said uh, if it were a country, it'd be a, a Catholic country, Gene, my sense is that, in fact, really to a greater degree than maybe on the mainland, mm-hmm. faith and government are kind of intertwined. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, 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 the second largest landowner in Guam is the Catholic Church. Uh, the, the, the Catholic Church, the archdiocese there, uh, the, the, govern, the, the, the governmental leaders there, the political leaders often defer to uh, the, the church in terms of, of, of certain decisions. Uh, for example, every few years, every election cycle, the, the question of whether to legalize gambling comes up. And uh, the, the biggest uh, opponent of that effort is the Catholic Church. They launch a huge political uh, uh, ad campaign against it. And they have a lot of say. And, and uh, sure enough, the gambling, uh, every time the gambling vote comes up, it is uh, defeated very handily um, in terms of uh, because of people's belief and faith in the church. Um, I want to talk just quickly uh, about uh, what it's like to have such a strong military presence uh, on a in a country. So um, one of the, as I talked to Victoria earlier today, I'd spent quite a lot of time in Vieques. Vieques uh, no longer has um, the military presence there, but they went through all that. So uh, with the, and certainly they've been through the environmental concerns. And uh, I asked Victoria if Guam could ever be peaceful, like we have peace in Connecticut. The 
wants to expand its military presence by relocating Marines from Okinawa to Guam. And I'm sure you know that the, the Okinawans have protested the presence of the Marines, there, particularly because of the rapes and the violence that has occurred in their community. And so about 2006, the U.S. had uh, entered into an agreement with Japan to relocate the Marines to Guam. And right there is sort of at the heart of the problem. There was not a representative of Guam present. This was an agreement between the United States and Japan. In the first environmental impact statement they released, we were going to have an 80,000 population boom in an island of 160,000 people. That's That's huge. They had originally identified a sacred village in the in the island called Pogget, which is an ancient village where there are remains from our ancestors and artifacts. And it, it's one of the few places we can still go to and see the evidence of our ancestors' lives. We had a huge community effort to stop this, and uh, the, the military prepares an environmental impact statement, and then we're allowed to leave comments. We're not allowed to say yes or no. We can just leave these comments. And so the people of Guam actually generated 10,323 comments, which is a record in NEPA history, and especially from such a tiny community. One of the alternatives they explored is another incredibly culturally and historically significant site. The native name is Litexen. And right now, there's a, the Fish and Wildlife Service has a wildlife refuge there. Um, but it's also the site of laddie houses, caves with pictographs and handprints of our ancestors. It's a really important site to our people. So, and in order to build the range and the like housing and containment area for the Marines, they would level a thousand acres of limestone forest, which is habitat to our native fruit bats, to endangered butterflies, to endangered trees, and traditional medicine that's only really grown and found there. One of the ranges is a multi-purpose machine gun range. So the surface danger zone extends over Litexen and out into the water where people still fish. It's a very important fishing ground. Um, Helen, this gets back to the three Guams you talked about. So one of those three Guams, uh, maybe the biggest of those three Guams, is the notion of, that it is effectively a military base. Pretty much. Yeah. And and how, how pervasive... In your eyes, was that? In other words, to what degree did that kind of dwarf or blot out a lot of other things? Well, you know, when you go and visit and you go on the base, I had to be cleared and I uh, stayed with my daughter. So uh, that's separate from the other places. But wherever you go, it's just everybody's a lot of, as as other people have noticed, uh, the Chamorro people and the native people work on the base. Um, but when you go on the base, you've got to go in and out through the gate, and so you have a lot less freedom. But really, I just go back to those those three areas, you know, Tamanung with the built-up beaches and hotels and, and the Japanese and Asians come and spend a couple of weeks and, and leave and do high-end shopping and things like that. But the military presence is, is, is kind of it. And, you know, I when I spoke to your producer, Betsy, uh, before the show, Colin, you know, I, I did feel the sense of the, of the Native people, the sort of a, just a resignation, uh, just a... Uh, powerlessness um, and um, the bases the base says both are the presence right I mean Gene um, I felt so much in some of the people that I talked to but especially Victoria that sense of almost uh, helplessness that's maybe not quite the right word but in, in many respects the military in Guam does seem like the 2,000 pound gorilla I mean it kind of gets to do what it wants 
Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, it's funny that Victoria mentioned the Marines uh, moving from Okinawa to Guam. I was actually the one who broke that story uh, back, in the, back in the early aughts of the century um, when I was still working there as, as, as a reporter. Um, and I remember that night when we blared it out in like a huge 72-point font headline, uh, you know, 8,000 Marines coming to Guam. Um, and it's, it, that, that kind of thing is celebrated because uh, the, 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 the military factors so much into the economy, into the spending. Um, the, the, most people just see that and, and, and they see dollar signs. Um, m- many of the businesses that are there are very much oriented to getting military contracts, the food businesses there. I have friends who own food businesses who sell food to the, to the bases. Uh, Home Depot is there and they're not for the people of Guam because they've been building their own houses for centuries. Uh, mm-hmm. They're for the military. Um, you know, uh, so it uh, yeah, and and from from Helen's perspective, like I was born outside the bases, so as I mentioned in my piece in the Washington Post, um, when, every time I went on base, it felt like I was going to Disneyland because <laughs> it was cleaner there. The, the, the there was no jungles. They had a, they had a Popeye's chicken, which I really loved, uh, and the, the the Navy Exchange there, uh, everything was was cheaper there, and they had more choices in terms of of uh, for the consumer. So uh, it was interesting growing up outside the base. All right. I want to take a break here. Uh, I want We're going to have time to, to talk a little bit more, particularly even about the notion of Guamanian independence when we come back. Quickly, uh, I want to reacquaint you with our guest, Dr. Helen Everard, physician, author, radio host of Your Mind Matters on WESU in Middletown, recently had an extended stay in Guam to visit with her daughter, who's a teacher on the island. Gene Park is joining us. He's from The Washington Post. He's a reporter who was born and raised on Guam, wrote the essay, Guam, a colonized island nation where 160,000 American lives are not only at risk, but often forgotten. We're talking about Guam today uh, because, of course, it's been in the news because it is... uh, as close to North Korea as as American citizens get. We also talked to Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero. Uh, We had to do that early in the morning because of the time difference. Uh, She's the managing editor of the University of Guam Press. Um, I wanted to talk to somebody, and as Jean will explain in just a second, uh, Guamanians do not speak with one voice or one mind about this, but I wanted to talk to somebody who supported the notion of independence, and that would be Victoria. Absolutely. Guam has three political status options, which follow the UN recommended options through the decolonization process, which is independence, statehood, or free association, uh, which would be similar to what the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau and the Marshall Islands have with the U.S. And I believe for Guam, one of the most important things that independence gives us is sovereignty and a voice, the ability to represent ourselves locally and internationally. We don't represent ourselves in any international or even regional forums. And as a result, all of these decisions that have such tremendous impacts on our lives are made without our consent. And independence is really the only option that gives us that full sovereignty. And I believe that you know, it would allow us to explore other economic possibilities for the island so that we don't have to be so dependent on the U.S. military presence. Of course, because we are very dependent on the U.S. military presence, I don't imagine that we would be able to do away with the bases overnight or, you know, a lot of people's fears is that independence means, oh, you're just kicking the U.S. out. 
part, a huge part of colonization is forced dependency. I mean, 90% of our food comes in on ships now, when, whereas 70 years ago, we grew 90% of our own food and caught 90% of our own food. So imagine how much has changed just since the war. And I don't expect that independence means that all that would go away. And in fact, you know, according to the UN Charter that the U.S. signed, they have a moral and legal obligation to ensure that the social, political, and economic well-being of the people is in place before leaving. So in many colonies, especially ones that, like Guam, have had such a long history of colonization, there would be a transitionary period where we would want to be able to negotiate, you know, a transition to a healthy and thriving nation Say, for example, the people of Guam want to maintain some type of, you know, U.S. military presence for defense of the island. We could negotiate that through a status of forces agreement, which currently we cannot do. So we don't set the terms of their presence. You know, I believe that if we were independent, we would be able to say when enough is enough. And I truly do believe it affects our health and our lives. You know, we suffer from higher cancer rates here than in the U.S. You know, our people die very young of diseases that are directly connected to colonization. So, um, Jean, Victoria has a pretty toxic view of the American presence there. I mean, a literally toxic view, as you, if you just as you just heard, but also as uh, an indigenous person, she also sees that influence uh, as oppressive. Um, but you say that that's not necessarily how everybody feels. No, it, uh, the, the the view is really split, uh, as far as I know, um, uh, the, at least definitely when I left it. I think there has been a growing interest in it, uh, thanks to the government-funded uh, and government-created uh, Commission of Decolonization. So, uh, so they are now calling it decolonization, they're calling it by name. So the, that education campaign is really starting. A lot of what Victoria said about, about uh, being able to negotiate uh, the, the, the military defenses and making sure that the well-being of the colony is safe before they pull out. Those are all, are, are, are all things that I don't think a lot of people uh, know about. So I think uh, that there has been a, a huge uh, uh, education campaign going on in Guam right now uh, to do that. But right now, the, they're, they're mixed with either doing that or whether it has statehood or, uh, or, or something like the Commonwealth, uh, like, like Puerto Rico. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, there is no resounding majority there. Um, it, it, it continues to be a, a, still a discussion. Helen, when you were there, did you feel like you were in the United States of America? No. Mm-hmm. And ex- why not? Well, the geography, for one, the whole mechanics of the base. I didn't have any freedom. I had to go back and forth, and there, there were even time restrictions there. Um, I, uh, we ate a lot off base and uh, went to different villages, and I went snorkeling in different places, and I felt uh, like I was in a foreign country. The most important experience I had really, Colin, was the day that I was able to go to my daughter's school. And it's an, it's, uh, the Agatha Johnson Middle School's got almost 900 students, and it just doesn't have what we have here. Um, I mean, they, they've got um, uh, no music program, for example. Um, and so I sat in her classroom, and she teaches TESOL, which is teaching English to speakers of other languages. That's her specialty. And these kids were just so wonderful, just like any child would be. But they were from not only just Guam, but other islands in Micronesia. One of the big ones, for example, is Chuk. And in fact, when I spoke to my daughter this morning, I said, uh, how many kids in your school are from other islands? And you know, it's up to 40%. So she's teaching children who have their native 
language, which might be Chukis, and then they go to Guam. They have to leave their families. They're living with perhaps another family member or whatever. Then they might pick up some Chamorro. Then they're learning English. Um, this is a tremendous challenge, and um, I certainly didn't feel like I was uh, in the United States. And even even uh, as others have mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, uh, you can't get everything you want. I mean, a funny thing is I, I like to swim, and I use nose clips, and I forgot to pack them. So as soon as I got there, I went to a store off base, and I said, let's go get nose clips. And nobody on the island had nose clips. Mm. So, you know, and then people were saying, oh, we'll, we'll have to see. We don't know when we're going to get them and things like that. Um, it was really the limitation of choice. You know, I did a lot of cooking for my daughter. Uh, mushrooms were, fresh mushrooms were $9 a pack. Um, I mean, I definitely felt like I was in Asia. I've been to Southeast Asia on other trips uh, I felt the Asian influence, of a fairly strong Filipino influence. I felt the religious influence. For example, my daughter's aide, her husband died a year ago, and she's undergoing— she actually wants to leave Guam. She wants to go to Alaska to be with her daughter. But she's staying in the school as an aide because ritualistically they grieve for a year. So she's putting in that year um, until she can leave. Um, so I, I, to answer your question, I mean, that was a long answer, but I, I do, did not feel like I was in the United States except for, as Jean said, uh, you know, a McDonald's and a this mm. and a that. Okay, so we're almost out of time here. I just want to say, uh, some of you, like when we first proposed this show, dopey mainlander that I am, I said brown snakes because that was the only, literally the only thing I knew about Guam. Uh, but I've always known about brown snakes. We're not going to talk about brown snakes today because there's too many other things to talk about. But if you're curious about them, go online. There's a million videos on YouTube. You can read all about the brown snakes. Um, Gene, only maybe about 30 seconds left. But it does seem, despite everything that Helen says, as though ultimately Guamanians are, you know, Victoria's ideas notwithstanding. I mean, it, it seems unlikely somehow that the American presence will ever go away. I don't think so. Uh, I, I think the, the, the I think as she says, uh, colonization can be kind of an ad, an addiction. Uh, there, there's now two generations of people that that, that understand that Guam is America, um, and the, um, I, I I I think it's going to be a very very long time before before any of that changes. All right. Thank you so much uh, to both of you, uh, Dr. Helen Everard and and Jean Park from the Washington Post. Um, we're going to take a break. Uh, you're going to hear more about the culture of Guam from Victoria, whom you've already met, uh, and somebody else we haven't introduced you uh, to yet, the musical director of the Guam Symphony Society. Guam is 14 hours ahead of us, so they're already getting ready for our next episode, which is about the eclipse, which is four days and 22 hours away, unless you're the person who listens to us every day in Chile, in which case it's too much math. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is swimming off the coast of Guam. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ann Curry, who was born on Guam. For real. I already told you about the topic for tomorrow's show. Let us prepare a welcome for our post-eclipse giant lizard masters. And now, back to Colin. 
In this final segment, we're going to talk to two different people about culture. I think one of the mistakes we make here on the mainland is when we talk about Guam at all, we talk about Guam under these kinds of circumstances, and then we forget Guam for a few years. I asked Victoria to share a Chamorro tradition that she or her family has preserved. That's something that has nothing to do with the military or the threat from North Korea. Well, you know, I believe that one of the most beautiful things about our people, and, and everybody always mentions it, is that we are very hospitable, giving people. You know, we love to cook. We love to take care of our family and our guests. Um, in, in my family, I think that some of the traditions that are really important to me is respect. The Chamorro people believe very strongly in respect that starts with the way in which we respect our elders and also our children. We have a very deep love that we show each other. And so uh, something that I do with my kids is, as I was mentioning earlier, like places where there are Lati. Lati are the remains of our ancestors' homes. And our ancestors used to bury themselves, um, bury their dead under their homes. And so a Lati site is not just kind of where you can see what their homes were like, but also where you can pay respect to them and to the dead. And so I take my children on hikes in the jungle. We go to Lattie sites and we chant and we pray to our ancestors. And, you know, we really believe that the spirits of our ancestors live on in these sites and in the jungle. And so we're very respectful when we enter the jungle. We're very quiet. We ask permission of our ancestors to even enter these spaces. And then when we go, we just, we literally just feel their presence. And that's something that I'm, very happy to be able to experience and pass on to my children, and it's something I know that they will pass on to their children. And I think that, you know, when when we fight to protect these spaces, it's because we know how sacred they are, and because so many of them have already been destroyed through colonization and militarization. And our, our island is really beautiful. It's three minutes away from where we live. There's gorgeous beach that we can always go to and you can swim year round and the water is warm. I lived in the Bay Area. I could never do that. (laughs) I longed for that. So these are the things that I really hope will be around for my grandkids. Now I'm talking to Stephen Bednarzik, a musical director and conductor of the Guam Symphony Society. Uh, First of all, welcome to our conversation, Stephen. Well, thank you very much for having me. And half a day, as you've taught me how to say. Half a day, yes. And uh, so Bednarzik doesn't sound to me like a Chamorro name. Uh, How did you come to be living on Guam? Well, uh, I'm originally from Springfield, Massachusetts. (laughs) And uh, my father's company moved to Florida when I was a kid. I went to School of the Performing Arts in North Carolina. Ended up at New England Conservatory. Then I was in South Carolina working on my uh, DMA in conducting. The former conductor from the Guam Symphony was also working on his DMA in South Carolina. And he said, hey, I'm leaving. There's a job open. And I thought, hey, sounds great. So I moved out here in 2000, and uh, I've been here ever since. Uh, tell me about the symphony orchestra that, that you uh, direct and conduct. Um, who's in it? The orchestra, it's mostly it's a community-based orchestra. We have a, a core member of about 50 people or so that live on island, mm-hmm. and we'll bring in extra musicians from, you know, Korea and Japan and, and surrounding areas for our bigger concerts. Uh, it was founded in 1967, believe it or not, so mm-hmm. it's been around for 50 years. We just finished our 50th season, mm-hmm. and one of the important founding members is actually the current U.S. delegate 
to the U.S. House of Representatives, Madeline Bordaglio. Hmm. She moved out here in the late 1940s, and she was a violinist when she was in college. And she was eventually the uh, first lady of Guam. She was married to the governor for a couple of years. Yeah, just a reminder to our listeners, we, we've covered this elsewhere in the show, but uh, although Guam does not have voting representation in Congress, there is a non-voting uh, delegate. That's who Stephen is. That's right. She's a non-voting delegate to the U.S. House. Um, and so give it what's, well, I don't know, what was the repertoire for the past season? What kind of uh, music uh, did the Symphony Society tackle this year? Uh, what's popular out here is a kind of half tops, half classical. So we'll do a Beethoven and Broadway concert, mm-hmm. where the first half will be Broadway show tunes with some singers. And then uh, a couple years ago, I brought out the concertmaster from the Hong Kong Philharmonic, and he did the Beethoven Violin Concerto in the second half. So that type of formula tends to work well over here. Uh, we do about four big concerts a year, and then we also have our young artist competition, and then we do some children's concerts, and we do have a chamber series. And the season runs your typical orchestra season from about October to May. Is there opera on Guam as well? Every now and then. We don't do a lot of opera. I did an opera gala finale at the end of our 50th season, and I brought in a singer from the Korean National Opera, and we have a very fine soprano here, Colleen Jennings. But as far as big productions of operas, they are few and far between over here. You know, music plays such an incredible role in connecting people to themselves, connecting people to a moment. And and obviously Guam is having a moment right now, at least to the eyes of us in the mainland. And it's hard for me to know whether or not what's going on right now with North Korea is just just top of mind for everybody uh, in Guam right now, or, or whether, in fact, the proximity to North Korea means this subject has never been very far from your minds. I don't know. Is, if I walked into a coffee shop tomorrow morning, what would people be talking about? This they would talk about a little bit, but mainly everything's life is normal over here. It's interesting. A few years ago, there was a, a kind of modified threat from North Korea that they had missiles that could get here. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing because I'm actually traveling to Seoul, South Korea to conduct the Seoul Orchestra in October. Mm. And the musicians I know over there, they live with this threat daily. They're 35 miles away from Pyongyang. And in Guam over here, it's talked about, and it's unfortunately it's joked about sometimes in a a way. But uh, last week I was in Japan, and from watching the Japanese talk shows, Japan was concerned. They weren't really worried about the missiles going to Guam. They were very concerned that the missiles were flying over their country. Mm-hmm. That was the topic of, of discussion over there, because they had to fly over Japan to get to here. So uh, this is kind of in the air all the time over here, but since nothing has really come to fruition, at least since I've been here, and you talk to a lot of the Korean residents that live on Guam, they say it's been going on for 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. The regime's been in place. In terms of the composition of your orchestra, are, are there Chamorro and other Guamanian people? Is it kind of a mix uh, in terms of it's, who plays in the symphony? Yeah, it's a, it's a heavy mix. You have some Chamorros. And, and then Guam is a very culturally diverse area. There's a large Japanese, Korean, Filipino population here, Chinese. And so it's, it's a kind of healthy mix. We live on an island. It's kind of uh, it fluctuates. It's a little transitory. So we have musicians that come and go on a pretty regular basis. And I try to program accordingly to what we have at the time, where our strengths are. Do you think the uh, period you're going through right now, and as you say, it's not necessarily uh, top of mind for everybody all the time, do you think it'll affect some of your musical choices? Will you look for certain kinds of inspirational music or calming music? Or does it programming the symphony not really work that way? 
Uh, it doesn't really work that way right now. Occasionally, you know, we'll put out a piece uh, in memoriam or something like that. But as of right now, uh, nothing really has happened. And hopefully, knock on wood, the situation seems to be subsiding a little bit yes. right now. So our first concert comes up October 21st and 22nd. By that time, hopefully everything will be back to normal. What will you be playing at that time? It's a typical uh, fall classics kind of concert. The first half is classical music. We're doing the Walton facade. We're doing the Greek morning moods. We're doing the ritual fire dance by Desaia. We're doing Montagues and Capulets by Prokofiev. And then the second half is all uh, movie music. We're doing highlights from West Side Story, music from Cinema Paradiso, the beautiful Cavatina by Stanley Meyer from The Deer Hunter, and finishing up with uh, The Force Awakens, Star Wars. <laughs> so we do kind of half classical, half pop concerts. After. Right. Well, hopefully The Force Awakens will not be a particularly apt song yeah. at that time. Well, uh, first of all, um, of course, I'm talking to you not too far from your hometown. We're just down the road from Springfield. So Stephen yeah. Bednarczyk, uh, musical director and conductor of the Guam Symphony Society, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome. And we'll go out with that, Prokofiev. Uh, we'll do Montague and uh, Capulet. Thank you so much for talking uh, once again. Thank you. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Okay, bye-bye. When I got off the phone with Stephen, I realized which part of the Prokofiev, Romeo, and Juliet he's talking about. It's a part that's often compared, oddly enough, to the imperial march of Darth Vader in Star Wars. And it made me think about artistic people and the way that they sometimes make unconscious choices that more closely reflect their mood or the mood of the people around them than they even realize. So we'll end today with one of the pieces that the Guam Symphony Society will be playing in October. It is the Montagues and Capulets section from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet.